All right, Jim, thank you so much. Let's give Jim a hand for reading that, huh? (laughs) It's good every now and again just to sit as a congregation and read and let scriptures just sort of wash over us. We don't read that much all the time, but uh, we thought the beginning of the year here, as we start this journey of reading the Bible together, we just wanted to read this this opening passage of the Bible of of creation. So, Jim, thanks so much for reading that for us so well. Well, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. It's so good to see each one of you. And uh, this week, uh, New Year's Day, we did begin um, Open Here, which is this church-wide effort to encourage one another in developing a habit, a practice of daily Bible reading. Um, I'm encouraged to tell you that across our four campuses at uh, here at Brookside and Leewood, Olathe, downtown, um, we have over a thousand people, well over a thousand people have signed up to do this, um, which is just really exciting. And I, I just can't wait to be here this time in a year and think about what, how we are different as a congregation for having had a thousand plus of us uh, read through the Bible uh, together and develop this habit. And as we prepare to do that, as we start on this journey of open here, um, just want to remind us again what the Bible is. Why have we been given the scriptures? What is this book really? And no one uh, sums this up or describes this better than, than Sally Lloyd-Jones in the introduction that she writes to, it's actually a children's Bible she wrote, and uh, it's called The Jesus Storybook Bible. Parents, if you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, especially if you have young kids, it's a must-have. Even if you don't have kids, it's a great read. Um, And this is how she describes what the Bible is. Listen, Listen to what she writes. She says, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. And God put it into words too. He wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible does certainly have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of God who loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story. And at the center of the story is a baby. Every story of the Bible whispers his name. And so this week, as we began reading Genesis, as we're going to spend some time looking at Genesis here in the message this morning, as we continue to read the Bible throughout the year, let's together be listening for the whispers, the rumors of Christ on every page of this book. Let's pray as we start. Father in heaven, thanks so much that you have um, given us this book. Thank you that you have written that you love us all over creation, but that you have written it unmistakably in the Bible and in the giving of your son. And so I pray that this morning as we look into this good world that you have made, the world as it ought to have been, uh, may we be encouraged to see life as you've designed it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so a question. What does Ridley Scott's movie Prometheus, this kind of prequel to the alien films, uh, what does that 
have to do with these opening chapters of Genesis, this text that Jim just read for us? Well, at, at first, you might think probably not a lot. Prometheus, alien, sci-fi, kind of horror movie, not a lot. But if you, if you think about it in the right kind of way, uh, these stories actually have a lot in common. They're both stories of human origins. They're both stories about our maker. And, and just to be clear, the movie Prometheus definitely isn't for everyone. Um, I don't even really know if it was totally for, for me. I was intrigued by it, so I watched it. Uh, it's definitely pretty intense, uh, bordering on horrifying at points. Um, but I was fascinated by it when I saw the trailers because of its premise. It's about the search for our maker, And kind of the premise of the story is humans in the future have discovered all throughout the earth these archaeological symbols that point to these creatures, a creator in another world. And understandably, these humans are curious. They want to find out what's going on. And so they they hop onto the spaceship and they fly to this planet that these star maps have given them direction to to find out who or what has made us. And so despite what it seems like on the surface, this is really just a movie about, you know, aliens killing people, which it is a lot about that. But at a deeper level, um, it really is a story about what it means to be human, about what it means to have a creator, and what it looks like to be either created for more or less than what we had hoped for. And so in Prometheus, it seems like we were created for less than what we hoped for. Um, And there's one scene that captures this so well, and it's a conversation between one of the crew members on the ship and, and, and the robot. The robot is the one standing. So watch this clip. You think we wasted our time coming here, don't you? Your question depends on me understanding what you hope to achieve by coming here. What we hope to achieve was to meet our makers, to get answers, why they even made us in the first place. Why do you think your people made me? We made you because we could. Can you imagine how disappointing it would be for you to hear the same thing from your creator? (laughs) May I ask you something? Please do. How far would you go to get what you came all this way for? Your answers. What would you be willing to do? Anything and everything. I love that clip because you have this powerful line in there. Imagine if how disappointed you would be if that was the answer to your question, that we made you because we could. If, what if we existed simply because some higher power out there could make us? Um, that we are just some silly experiment based on the whim of some deity? Or, or, or what if the reason that we're here, the reason that we're here this day is just because of, of billions of years and lots of chance? So what would we do for answers, anything and everything. Because I think each one of us knows deep down that we were made for so much more. And you know, one of the primary reasons that I believe in God, one of the primary reasons that I choose to believe that there is a God, uh, and, and I have a lot of really good, well thought out reasons, but one of the primary reasons is an existential reason. That as I look at the world, as I experience it, I just have an overwhelming sense that I was made for more. That this is, can't be all that there is. Uh, Philip Yancey is a writer, and he calls these rumors of another world. He says there are just too many rumors that we exist for more than this. That more than just to live and die in a broken world with broken bodies and broken lives. There has to be more than just this. 
So what are these rumors? What are these rumors that we hear that make us think that perhaps there is something more? That we weren't just created because some deity could. The way uh, that I often experience this is through music. Um, I remember the first time, this was last year, sitting in the Kauffman Center and hearing Handel's Messiah played for the first time in that building. And when the, the, the opening chorus of that piece of music just washed over me, just having a sense of, of transcendence, of longing. Um, there was another time Rachel and I were at the Kauffman Center and it was when, um, when Yo-Yo Ma played there for the first time. And he came out at the end for an encore. And when he played Bach's cello suite number one, it was just incredible. Absolutely incredible. A moment of transcendence. Actually, I think if you were to ask Rachel, I think it's still kind of a toss-up in her mind as to what her favorite memory of all time is. That moment of hearing Bach or, or our wedding. I don't, I don't know. And, and you laugh, but I think, you know, she talks about that with such, it's just this incredibly powerful moment of hearing that piece of music played. Um, Steve Jobs, when he heard Yo-Yo Ma play, and this is in, in, his, auto, in his biography, it says, he said after t- hearing, um, hearing Yo-Yo Ma play, he said he teared up and he said, your playing is the best argument I've heard for the existence of God because I don't really believe a human alone could do this. Um, or, or what about, we hear rumors in, in stories, in a story that's well told, um, whether it's in film or in a book or on the stage. Um, I remember still reading for the first time, vividly, reading the, C.S. Lewis's novel, Till We Have Faces. I mean, the story, the so beautifully written, so intricately woven together, it changed me. It turned me inside out, upside down. I've never been to a performance of Les Mis and not, you know, been on the verge of tears during the chorus on my own or, or felt myself sore with, do you hear the people sing? And, and the stories that, that make us feel these longings, they don't even have to be happy stories, at, le- at least not for me. They just have to have a rumor of truth about them. Two of my favorite t- television shows that I love to watch um, are two AMC series, Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And if you know anything about either one of those shows, they're not sort of happy, feel-good shows. But the beauty with which the creators and the actors can, tr- can portray the brokenness, the fallenness of the human condition, it's gripping, it's powerful. There's a rumor of truth about the story that they tell. Or what about the simple pleasures of seeing the Grand Canyon bathed in sunlight? Or the satisfaction of a job well done, either at work or at home. You know, I'm a homeowner now, and uh, so the other day I was at home, and we had a slow-running drain in, in the bathroom, and so I figured I took this thing apart, and I cleaned it all out and, and put it back together, and I just felt so good about completing this job. I probably turned that faucet on 20 times just to watch the water race down throughout the day. So the satisfaction that we feel at a job well done, of accomplishing good work, Um, The love that I have for Rachel and that she has for me is another incredibly powerful rumor. Or even the sorrow, the anguish that we experience over evil and death. This is a rumor too. This experience of rage or despair that we hear when we hear about events like the shootings in Newtown. Or as someone who's, my father's a police officer, that I feel when I hear about two officers murdered in the line of duty in Topeka. It just strikes something deep inside. I feel it when I'm praying with a couple in the hospital whose child is about to be born too premature to save. And the fact that I feel that we feel such immense pain in these moments is testimony that we were made for something more than this. Now granted, these are just rumors. They're not proof. But there are a lot of these rumors out there, aren't there? And, And maybe if you just heard one or two, you might be able to dismiss them as just sort of background noise. But the more that you begin to hear these rumors, 
the more that you begin to think maybe, just maybe there really is something more, something more than this. That maybe even if you don't believe, you begin to get to a place where you maybe want to believe that there's something more. Well, no story that I know explains these rumors like the one that we're going to be reading together throughout this year. The story of creation, fall, redemption, new creation. The story of what ought to be. The story of what is now as a result of the fall. The story of what can be in light of Christ's coming and what will be one day when it's restored. No story that I have encountered explains so completely both the goodness and the badness of the world that we live in, both the fear and the hope, the creativity and the chaos, the beauty and the tragedy. And and many theistic philosophers point this out, that this is is a coherent story. But, you know, we look at the other dominating stories of of our day, and even prominent atheistic philosophers like Thomas Nagel have begun to question the inadequacy or point out the inadequacy of sort of contemporary materialistic, atheistic, evolutionary models for understanding the account of the world that we live in, the range of human experience, cognition, consciousness, value. Um, Thomas Nagel, who's a university professor of law and philosophy at NYU, recently published an entire book on this topic. It's called Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of of Nature is Almost Certainly False. And he argues persuasively in this book for a compelling cultural understanding that how that we understand the world right now in the dominant culture is actually woefully inadequate. That there's so many, he kind of talks about it as, as the Darwinism of the gaps. So sometimes in quiet, subtle ways, other times in loud, dramatic ways, these whispers, these rumors sometimes shout out that we were made for so much more. In his brilliant address, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis said, These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we desire, but they are not the thing in of itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. There are rumors of another world. And this morning, as we look at the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3, we're going to see where these rumors come from. And as we consider these chapters together, we're going to see first that what we were made for, second, what went wrong, three, what we lost, and then lastly, what hope do we have? So we're going to see what we were made for, what went wrong, what we lost, and then what hope do we have? In each of these sections, we hear a rumor. We hear rumors of delight, rumors of shame, rumors of despair, rumors of hope. So this morning, we're going to spend time looking at each one of these chapters, doing a bit of a survey. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at Genesis 1 through 3 together. And this is a lot of ground to cover, um, but we're going to try to pull out some of the most important things in these early chapters. And the good news is, is that many of you, if you've been uh, jumped in with Open Here this week, you've read these chapters. You've, you've been spending some time with them. Now, it's important as we begin to look at Genesis to realize that this book was written um, and the, and the other four books that make up the first five books of the Bible were all written by the uh, by the person Moses. And they were written as Moses is leading the people out of Egypt and into Canaan. Now, this is significant because as, as the Holy Spirit is superintending the writing of these books, 
they are coming into a context where the primary purpose that they're being written for is to tell a different story about where we came from. Because Israel, God's people, had spent 400 years in a polytheistic culture in Egypt, and they're getting ready to go into another culture of Canaan that's full of of polytheists and, and, and pagans as well. And so it's in this moment that we're given the story of Genesis to explain how the world came to be that's so different from these other understandings that God's people had lived in for so long. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we hear rumors of delight. We catch glimpses of the world as it ought to be, as God created it to be. We begin to understand why God created. He didn't merely create us because he could. Rather, God first and foremost created us for himself. The Bible starts with these words, in the beginning God. God is assumed in the story, and he is the central character of the story. On every single page from beginning to end, he is the primary character about which the whole story is about. And we as human beings are significant and important because we are made in God's image. This is not a book about you and me. It's a book about God and what he has done. And God created the world as an overflow of his love, as a way to manifest his glory. God didn't need to create the world. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't lacking in anything. But he did it because he wanted to share the glory that he had. He wanted to display it in new ways. So in his infinite wisdom and glory, he creates. And Genesis 1, which we heard read for us, recounts this making of the whole world. Of the creation, first the forming and then the filling of the sky and the sea and the land. And this creative work culminates on the sixth day with the forming of the first human beings made in God's image. You see, you and I are the crown of creation. We are made in God's image. And we see this in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. This is what it means to be a human. This is what sets us apart from the rest of creation, from the animals, from anything else in the world, that we are created in the image of God. And being made in the image of God has sort of two components or, or two aspects to it. Part of it involves ruling. You can see in the, in the text at verses 26 and 7 that we, the goal, part of this that we're creating God's image means to rule, to govern the rest of the creation as wise stewards under God's guidance and dependence on him. And it also involves reflecting, ruling and reflecting, that we were made male and female in order to fully reflect the manifold splendor of God's glory He made two types, male and female, and together maleness and femaleness display, reflect God's glory. So we were created for God and by God, but we were also created for contribution, for work, and we we make something of the world that God has placed us in. This is what we were called to do. We see this in the call to rule in verse 26, and we also see it in later on in chapter 2 in verse 15, where God places the man and the woman in the garden to work it and to keep it, the text says. So though work, as we will see in a moment, is corrupted by sin and by the fall, it isn't the result of the fall. You see, we were created in an image of a God who works, who is creative. And so our calling to be workers, to work in the world, to make something of the world which God has placed us in, isn't a result of the fall at all. It's something that we were made to do. Our work, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether we're in school, whether we're raising children, whether we're working in the yard or decorating our home, going to the office, working at a job site, looking for a job, wherever it is that we find ourselves, 
we are contributing to the world that God has made. You see, our work is first and foremost about our contribution, not about remuneration, what we get in return. Our work is about how we contribute. Now, we, we find the language of dominion or ruling. Some of us, I mean, I, me included, can find that a little bit disconcerting. When we, were like, we were to dominate or to have dominion over creation, have power. I think we are all rightly suspicious of power or dominion language. But when you look at the storyline of the Bible, people are always given power for the flourishing of others. Um, Andy Crouch, who's the author of a book called Culture Making, Rediscovering Our Creative Calling, points this out. He says, for Christians, the exercise of power means helping people fulfill their God-given call to be creators of culture. If you want to know if you're using power wisely, you have to ask the question, who's flourishing as a result of me having power? And all of us have some power, even if it's just a little bit. When in, in, our, in our family or in our home or over a little bit, and others of us have been given great power and influence. But it's always for the flourishing of others. And actually, I'm excited that on the weekend of April 5th and 6th, Andy Crouch is going to be with us here at the Brookside campus. And he's going to be pressing into us more with us, more about what it means to be creators of culture in a lot more depth. So, however, we weren't just created for work, work, work. We were also created for delight and for rest. We were created to delight and rest in the world that God has made. We see this in chapter 2. It begins with God resting. Not, not because he was tired, but to enjoy the world that he has made. To enjoy the creation that he built. And so what he does in those chapters is he sets for us a pattern. A pattern for us that we are creatures. We're not the creator. We need regular periods of rest each night. We need regular periods of rest each week. Our resting demonstrates our trust in God who provides as well as gives us space to enjoy what he has made. You know, at the core of when we fail to rest, it means that we don't really trust that God can provide, that we have to be constantly working. So our failure to rest is almost always at the root of failure of a trust for God to provide, to God to rule, to him to be sovereign. We are creatures, not the creator, that he is in control. So we rest. We were made to enjoy the beauty and the goodness of God's creation. And this is why we experience great natural, when we experience great natural beauty or enjoy listening to a piece of music or, or wander through the galleries at the, at the Nelson Atkins, we so easily get in touch with something transcendent. We were made to enjoy this world that God has given us. And the garden that God's plants, you see this in, in Genesis chapter 2, the garden that God plants is for man and woman to live full of beauty, as you may recall from reading the descriptions this past week of the rivers and the precious stones and the metals and the trees, all this place, the place where God places people, the location of the garden itself is even significant. It says it's placed into the east, or east, I guess is that way, it's placed into the east. And in the ancient Near East, the East was, you know, where the, as it still does today, is where the sun rises. And so it was a symbol of new life, of new birth. So the garden is placed in the East, this place of life and newness. In the garden, there are many trees. But there are two trees in particular which the text highlights for us. The text of, or the tree of, the, of life and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is significant because humans by nature were susceptible to death. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. However, they had access to this tree of life, this gift of God that was sustaining and preventing death and decay. 
The tree of knowledge and good of evil refers to knowledge of what prospers and what destroys life, of ethical knowledge, of wisdom to discern and make decisions about what is good and bad. And Adam and Eve depended on God for that knowledge. And God tells Adam that he may eat of every tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll get to that a little bit more later on. And last, we can't miss that we were created for a relationship. We were created for God. We were created um, to enjoy his creation. We were created for work. But we were created for relationship with one another and with God. Verse 18 says that it was not good for man to be alone. And this is not only because Adam was, was sort of lonely. I mean, you, you kind of get that sense in the text that he's going through the different animals. He hasn't found someone he really connects with. But it's not just that. It's the fact that when we are alone... We can't fully image God. And the reason that is, is because God himself, we discover in the storyline of scripture, is that God himself is a community. That he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That he isn't just one, but he's also three. And so in order to fully image who God is, we have to be in relationship with others because he is a relationship. He's existed from all eternity as a relationship. And so Adam alone can't fully image God. There needs to be maleness and femaleness, a multiplicity of relationships. That's why as, as a church, we're better together. As we image God in relationship, we were built for relationship because God himself is a relationship. We also see here God establishing the pattern for marriage. Now, in a fallen world of divorce, and we're going to see later on in polygamy and gender confusion and same-sex attraction, all this makes understanding marriage much more complex and difficult and often incredibly painful. However, the pattern that God sets here in the beginning of one man and one woman for life is how marriage works best. In the Gospels, Jesus points back to this text as the foundation for and the pattern for marriage. So we, as we consider this, what should our response be as we look at these first couple of chapters, as we look at what we were made for? Well, first of all, we should want to seek out to live out the design that we were intended to live out. To embrace healthy rhythms of work and rest, of living according to the contours of God's design for relationships, for marriage, to image maleness and femaleness, to seek to live as we were made to live. So we've looked at what we were made for, but as we know acutely, something went wrong. And we find the answer to what went wrong here in Genesis chapter 3 in verses 1 through 13. What happened? Well, here, as we heard rumors of delight in the first two chapters, here we hear rumors of shame. Now, as we look at Genesis chapter 3, it's important to note that these characters, the serpent, Adam and Eve, these are historical realities. Adam and Eve are real people. They're historical figures, but they're also sort of super historical as well. They are real, but they also are symbolic, representing every man and every woman. For example, Jesus, when he quotes this passage about Adam and Eve in relationship to marriage, he's applying their individual situation to the experience of everyone. Adam and Eve's story is our story. Their story of marriage is our story. Their story of fallenness is our story as well. And the rebellion starts with a question. Just a simple question. And the question sowed a seed of doubt in our hearts and minds. The minds of the man and the woman And the doubt that it sowed was a doubt about the goodness of God. 
And that seed took root and then it blossomed into rebellion. So it all begins with doubt. And it starts with this seemingly innocuous question. The serpent says to Eve, did God really say? Did God really say? Now, we we aren't told where the speaking serpent comes from. Um, It is described as being subtle or crafty. And it's important that subtle and crafty aren't necessarily negative uh, in in the Bible. That same set of language is used other places more positively. It just means that this creature was sort of intelligent, and he uses this intelligence obviously in a a negative way. But Jesus will tell his followers in the Gospels that we are to be wise as serpents. A serpent was a symbol of of wisdom or of, of intelligence. But the serpent here uses that craftiness to deceive, to sow a seed of doubt about God's goodness. So the question is, did God really say you should not eat of the tree of the garden? And what this does, that question immediately, it turns God's command into a question. He cast doubt on what God has said. And it's interesting to note, too, that though the, through the woman's response to this question, though she's much closer to the truth, also twists God's words and makes them much more restrictive and less good. Look carefully at the woman's response. And this is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, or 2 and 3, excuse me. This is what the woman says. She says, we may eat of the tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the one that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And I want, we should notice three things about Eve's response. First, she leaves out the word every or any. When God originally gave the command, he said you may eat of every fruit uh, of the, in the garden, every tree, except for one. But she just says, we made of the fruit of the tree. She leaves out the word every. So subtly she makes God less generous, just slightly less generous. He's not as expansive as he once was. And second, she refers to the tree that they were not permitted to eat from as the one that's in the midst of the garden rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, she takes the tree and turns it from something that was a, a moral question and now it's just a geographical point on the map. And finally, she adds to what God has said and makes him far more restrictive, saying that they can't even touch the tree. God never said they couldn't touch the tree. So you see both the serpent first and then Eve sort of under his influence, they begin to make God less good, less generous, more restrictive. But it doesn't stop there. The serpent will now outright call God a liar and a selfish hoarder of good gifts. The woman said that they would die if they ate from the tree. And the serpent basically says, yeah, right, you're not going to die. God's just saying that to scare you. Look, he's withholding good things from you. He, He doesn't want you to have what he has. He's just trying to scare you. He doesn't want to share with you because he's bad. He wants to enslave you. He wants you to keep from being all that you can be. Don't worry about it. You need to be your own person. You need to get what's yours. You need to take what rightfully belongs to you, what you're owed. You're just as good as God anyway. And with this, the woman and the man, who the man's presumably standing nearby listening to all this happening, are deceived. And they are become convinced that they know better than God, that they are just as good as he is. 
and they take the bait. And this moment, every time I read the text, I'm just like, ah, oh, like how could they be so foolish to do this? It just seems so clear. But you know, the thing is, is when I really think about it, I, I mean, I fall prey to these same kinds of things all the time in my own life, right? I mean, advertising is, is, is built on these kinds of promises, right? That, that if we would just, the promise that, you know, that new iPad is really going to make me happy and feel like, man, my life is together until they come out with a new one, which they do like every six months. It's this vicious cycle, I can never keep up. Or, or the Bud Light commercials. I love the Bud Light commercials. And, and they must work because they keep putting them on there. But every time you watch a Bud Light commercial, it's all these guys. And I've never walked into a bar and ever seen any scene like this. But it's all these good-looking guys drinking this great beer. And there's all these hot women around. And somehow we believe that if, if we would just get that Bud Light, we just spent a dollar on that thing. Man, that's what our lives are going to be like, right? And what seems so foolish when we talk about it like that, but they sell a lot of beer, right? They do because we subtly believe those promises that, man, if I can just have that one thing, then my life will be like that. Then it'll be really good like that. So believing that they know better, the woman first and then the man refuse to be human. They usurp God's role And they begin, and this is the core of it, they begin to define what is good and evil for themselves. They say, well, God said that we shouldn't do this, but we're going to say it's okay. We're going to do it anyway. They start making the rules. And here's the thing. None of us are in the position to do this. Because in order to really know whether something is good or bad, you have to have complete knowledge. You have to know everything. Otherwise, you only know relatively. And so in order to know what is truly good or truly evil, we must have absolute, complete, total knowledge, something that in our finitude we can never have. And so it's the moment that they start making these decisions, it's headed for failure. Right? And, and, and just again, in our world, we see this. When you have a lack of complete knowledge, you end up, even in, in, with the best of intentions, making decisions that often have negative consequences. I mean, if you study economics, the whole law of unintended consequences, right? You pass a good law, you make an effort to raise taxes to help this thing, and then there's this whole set of unintended consequences. Without perfect, infinite knowledge, you can't really know in an absolute sense what is good and what is bad. That's why they were supposed to depend on God who had that knowledge to trust him to reveal what was good and what was bad, but they go their own way. They refuse to be human. They become, try to become gods themselves. By the very act of disobeying God, they take God's place and they start creating new laws of their own, deciding for themselves what is best. And we still all have that desire in us now as a result. I, I recently was reading over the holidays a collection of, of the best essays from 2012. And I stumbled across a brilliant essay. You can actually still get it online. I read it in a published form, but you can still find it online. It's called The Foul Reign of Emerson's Self-Reliance. The Foul Reign of Emerson's Self-Reliance. It was originally published in the New York Times Magazine last year. And in this piece, the author explores the consequences of a nation who has been so profoundly uh, shaped by Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance. And the author writes, he says, the excessive love of individual liberty that debases our national politics, he says it found its original poet in Ralph Waldo Emerson. Harold Bloom noted in an article for the New York Times that by self-reliance, Emerson meant a recognition of the God within us rather than the worship of the Christian Godhead. 
And the author in this essay, he quotes some lines from Emerson's essay. I don't know if you've ever read this essay, Self-Reliance, but he says, this is one of the things Emerson writes. Trust thyself, every heart vibrates that iron string. Or no law can be sacred to me except that of my nature. And some of these lines, the author points out, are so ingrained in us that we know them by heart. They feel like natural law. Another place, Emerson writes, I have my own stern claims in perfect circle. And with this one fell swoop, Emerson tips the scales in favor of his own confessional and without any hope of being raised or creating a balance. And so the author concludes, he says, ever since we've been misreading Emerson or at least misapplying him and as a sad result, it's the swagger of a man's walk that makes his measure and Americans' right to love ourselves before any other trumps all. We all pray fall prey to this ruthless desire to live for ourselves, to make our own rules. The Scottish uh, author George MacDonald once said, the one principle of hell is I am my own. The one principle of hell is I am my own, that we get to decide, I get to decide. I am my own. We listen to the lie that we can make our own rules, that we can become our own gods, somehow we can be like God and still manage to reject him and live without him, but we can't. And neither could the man or the woman in the garden. And immediately they start to scramble. This is what we see in the text. They start scrambling in shame. They realize that they are naked. They feel vulnerable and unprotected. So they fashion together these fig leaves as a symbol of a barrier that now exists between them. Before, where there was complete openness and transparency, now there is barriers and division. And if you think about this, now that they are making the rules for themselves, they are, they're afraid of each other. Because what's to say that Adam can't decide that what's best is for him to kill Eve or vice versa? Fear enters this relationship because now they are making the rules. And we, and we see this as happens with Cain and Abel, Right? They're alienated from one another and they hide from one another with fig leaves. But they're also alienated from God. But, but fig leaves can't hide them from God. And so they run and they hide in the trees. And God comes and he looks for them. But they continue to hide in the trees. They hear his voice. But they don't want to hear his voice anymore. And when he questions them, they don't confess. They just blame shift. And the scene would almost be comical if it wasn't so tragic. Adam immediately blames not only Eve, but God. He says, the woman that you gave me, God, this is your fault. I'm in this position because you gave me this woman. She's, she's at fault. And then she passes the buck to the serpent. So they become alienated from God as well. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. No one confesses. No one takes responsibility. There's only shame and scrambling, fear and desperation and panic. Gone are peace and joy and intimacy. Fear and selfishness are now the order of the day. So as we consider what went wrong, we must acknowledge our own brokenness. We must look at how these patterns play themselves out in our own hearts. Where are we hiding? Where are you hiding? What are the fig leaves that you're using to hide with? 
How do you respond when you're confronted with the reality of your own brokenness, your own rebellion? Do you respond with blame shifting or with humble confession? So we've seen what we were made for. We've seen what went wrong. And in the final verses of chapter 3, we see what we lost. You see, we hear the rumors of despair. What did we lose by rejecting the good, loving, merciful, and just God? We lost everything. We lost our relationship with him. We lost uh, the destroyed. We destroyed our relationship with one another, with creation. All these relationships that we were made for, they're now severed, destroyed. As a result of her treachery, the woman's relationship with her husband is destroyed. The relationship is cursed with conflict. As Walkie puts it, to love and to cherish is replaced by to domineer and subjugate. There's this tension now in this relationship. As a result of, of his treachery, the, the serpent is cursed to go on his belly to eat dust, and he's going to have his head crushed. As a result of Adam's treacheries, the ground is cursed. Work now becomes toilsome. What was supposed to be full of delight and joy now becomes a drudgery. Spiritual death happens immediately. They're separated from God and one another, and physical death is now an inevitability. They will die. Everything they were made for is now broken. We experience this pervasive depravity that means that nothing in all of creation is left untouched by the fall. It's all stained. It's all tainted. It may still have be good, but it's not as good as it was meant to be. It's still tainted. It's still touched by the curse. But the curse is also a blessing. Just as pain lets us know that we are sick, just as it lets us know that something is wrong with our bodies, so too the suffering that we experience in this world. It's a rumor. It lets us know that this is not how things were supposed to be. It presses us to look for rescue, for redemption, to look for something more, to not be content with the brokenness that we experience. Because after all, we were made for so much more than this. So the question is then, as we conclude, is there any hope? In this passage, we also do find rumors of hope. They are faint, and they are certainly at this stage only rumors. But they are there. Even in the curses, there is hope. So so what are these rumors of hope? Well, first, the first rumor of hope is that God doesn't immediately just wipe them off the face of the planet and start over. He doesn't just immediately zap them. He allows them to live. Second, he guards the way to the tree of life so that they won't live forever in their suffering. Actually, death is both, it's part of the curse, but it's also a gift and that allows us to escape the suffering. But the greatest rumors in this text come in 3.15 and 2.1, that the serpent will be crushed and that a sacrifice will be made. God says that he will put enmity between the serpent and the offspring of the woman and that the serpent will be crushed. Now the crushing is certainly a rumor, but even the enmity is a rumor. This is something I saw for the first time in this text, that the promise, this is a promise God makes. He says, I will put enmity between the offspring of the woman, and the serpent. And what that's a promise is, is that, that the woman won't forever be aligned, that we won't forever be aligned with the serpent, that he will put enmity between, that we will be aligned with God once again, that there is hope for redemption, that we will not always be on the side of rebellion, but that there will be enmity, that we will once again be aligned with God against the serpent. 
in three two or in, in three twenty one we see that also that God gives them coverings that required the shedding of blood. He replaces their fig leaves with animal skins. And that sacrifice, again, it's just a tiny little thread, but if we begin to pull that thread all the way through the Bible, we see that it leads to a sacrificial system, that it leads ultimately to a sacrificial system that points to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that would heal the earth forever. Even in Adam's naming of Eve, there is a rumor. Adam in faith recognizes that Eve will be the one from whom redemption comes. He calls her the mother of life. And there's a sense in which, yes, Eve is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, the one whom every page of this book is ultimately about. So we were made for so much more. We feel it all the time. So instead of ignoring those longings, stir them up, press into them, Yancey points out that sophisticated moderns like us often renounce, we haven't renounced transcendence, but we've rather just replaced it with weak substitutes. So when we feel those longings for more, don't just press them down or ignore them, but, but go after them. See where they take you, where they point. You see, the good news is that the longings will one day be fully satisfied, that God in his grace doesn't leave us where we are. He doesn't abandon us or destroy us, but he sends his son to be the new and better Adam who crushes the serpent's head. You see, Jesus is the new and better Adam who will triumph where the first Adam failed. Adam failed in the midst of a garden where he had everything, where it was perfect beauty and contentment. But Jesus faces temptation in the desert at the beginning of his ministry when he's hungry, when he's weak, when he's thirsty, and yet he passes the temptation. He resists where the first Adam failed. And by faith, Jesus' victory becomes our victory. He becomes the new and better representative of all of humanity. Our only hope is that we belong to him. One catechism puts it this way. What is our only hope in life and in death? That we belong both body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we feel the brokenness of the world, and yet we also experience these longings of so much more, Uh, We get these tastes. There's so much goodness in the world that you have made that remains, even though it's tainted by sin. May we draw on those longings. May we see them as signposts, pointing them to this bigger story that you're telling, that this is not all that there is. May we experience the goodness and the grace, the glory that you have made for us. The ultimately the glory that is you, that you have made us for yourself. Draw us into yourself. Draw us near to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.